Hi, everyone, and welcome to today's panel. I'm Troy Swanson, Library Department Chair at Moraine Valley, and I'm thrilled to welcome you to this panel discussion. Today, we will be focusing on the COVID-19 vaccine. Um, we'll be discussing the biology, the public health aspects, and the psychology impacting the acceptance of the vaccine. Hello, everyone. I'm Hannah Carlton. I am a public service librarian here at Moraine Valley. Uh, we're excited to be joined by three faculty members um, to help us explore this topic today. Um, I will ask them to introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Judy Corcoran. I am a nursing faculty member here at Moraine Valley Community College. I've been a nurse for 38 years. 15 of those have been teaching here at Moraine Valley. And I'm glad to be here. Thank you. My name is Laura Lawson-Collin. I'm a psychology faculty member here at Moraine Valley. My name is Pete Porter. I'm a associate professor of human anatomy and physiology here at the college. I'm also a nurse. Well, welcome to you all and thank you for sharing your time and expertise with us. Uh, to get started, um, I think we'll start out with the basics. Um, can you explain a little bit about what vaccines are and how they work. Um, Judy, maybe you can start? Sure. Vaccines are a way to train your immune system to fight some of the things that it might need to fight against. So um, vaccines have been around for a very long time. Smallpox was the initial instituting disease where it, it caused much pain and heartache many years ago and hundreds of years ago. Um, then smallpox vaccine was instituted. And that was one of the first vaccines because they realized that they could give pieces of smallpox to someone and their immune system would be then trained to fight smallpox. And over time, they realized it didn't have to be smallpox. It could be something weaker than smallpox, like cowpox. And that same training their immune system to fight cowpox also trained it to fight smallpox. And we have continued that growth and continued that knowledge until today. We have a number of vaccines to fight a variety of diseases and um, those many of them are extremely effective. And that system of developing a way to train your immune system to fight a disease kicked into high gear um, when COVID-19 came around and we were able to, to have several types of vaccines that came out within a very short period of time. Judy, I'd yeah. just like to add on that just a little bit of the science mm -hmm. that we even teach in our anatomy classes. You know, when you expose somebody to a virus, whether it's a live virus, a weakened virus, what happens is your it stimulates an immune system response in your body and you get what's called adaptive or acquired immunity. Basically, your body produces cells and antibodies that target that specific virus that you were exposed to. And the key of that is then you get what's called immunological memory. So your body produces cells or antibodies that remember that virus ostensibly for your life. And so anytime you're ever exposed to that virus again, your body has already trained sort of an army to fight that virus off before it can really infect you. So that's really one of the, the key things about vaccines is that when you take the vaccine, stimulates that immune response, that immune response is normally lifelong. So um, I'll just pose a follow-up question. Um, we've been hearing a lot about some specific different types of vaccines, um, like live or not live, and specifically messenger RNA vaccines um, relating to, to co the COVID vaccines. Um, could you talk about these different types of vaccines and, and how the COVID vaccine fits? 
I can start and then I'll let Pete add on to that because I'm sure his biology background, he understands it much more deeply. But the messenger RNA is a new type of vaccine. In the past, we were able to use either um, vaccine that had somehow been altered so that it didn't cause us to become as sick so that our immune system could um, ramp up and train an army, as Pete said, to, to fight against that. And that's what we've been using in the past. But they've been looking at mRNA for several years now as a means of fighting against maybe cancers and things like that. But when um, COVID-19 came around, they realized that that messenger RNA, that we could use that. The messenger RNA is actually what tells our cells to produce proteins. And we could use the messenger RNA to tell our cells to produce a spike protein, which is specific to coronaviruses that COVID of which COVID-19 is one, and that would help train our bodies to fight against the coronaviruses without ever giving them the actual virus. So um, the two, the first two, the um, first two vaccines that were approved, those two were messenger RNA vaccines, and, and there's a lipid protein that, that carries it into the nucleus of the cell where the, the cell can then begin to produce the spike proteins. The Johnson & Johnson one that has been approved more recently, that is more like the historical vaccines where there is a piece of a coronavirus that is then transported into the cell. But again, it tells the cell to produce the spike proteins. And then again, the body's immune system is trained to fight against that specific protein. Take away, Pete. Pete, you're on mute. So historically we've used, there's been like two different types of vaccines that we've used. We've used live vaccines or we've used weakened or inactivated vaccines. So the live vaccines were where we'd actually expose somebody to a live virus. So like when the smallpox, they would actually give you a little bit of live smallpox and your body would react to it. And hopefully the small amount of smallpox we gave you wasn't enough to make you really sick and your body could, you know, build up the immunity to it, fight it off, and then have that lifelong, that immunologic, um, lifelong immunity to it. So that's how live vaccines work. The weakened vaccines or the kill vaccine form is where we give you a dead or really uh, a killed vaccine. So we kill the vaccine, give it to you. We kill the virus, I'm sorry, and give it to you. But your body still mounts a response to it. It's not quite as strong a response typically, but your body will still mount a response and still give you that immunological memory to it. The problem with the we, the killed viruses is that we've kind of found that you usually wind up needing a booster to it because the immunity kind of wanes over time. It weakens because you didn't get as strong an immune response as you would with the live vaccine. The live vaccine has a little bit more risk because you're actually giving somebody a live virus. What's cool about what uh, Judy was saying, the mRNA, this is kind of a whole different ball game where they're giving you a genetic code. They're getting the genetic code into you either through lipoprotein or through, you know, a, a, um, a genetically modified virus that doesn't, doesn't make you sick and they give it to you. And that mRNA strand, that genetic code causes your cells to build those little protein spikes. So when you hear about the coronavirus, you know, we've all seen the picture of the sun with the little spikes on it. That's Corona. They call it the Corona of the sun, those little spikes, the mRNA code, causes the cells to make those little spikes, and then your body thinks it's coronavirus, even though it's not, and it reacts to it, and then you get that that immunity to it. So it's a pretty cool and novel type of uh, vaccine. Thank you, thank you. That was a great introduction to, the vac to what vaccines are. 
Okay, well, let's uh, shift gears a little bit and talk about some of the development process behind, you know, how these, how we get these um, vaccines out to the public. And um, we've heard a lot over the last year about manufacturing development. Um, I think all of us have been reading and, and learning a lot <laughs> across society. Um, just to start with, could, could you tell us a little bit about um, how vaccine trials work and how they protect the public? And uh, maybe we could start with Pete. Sure. Typically, um, in the United States, a manufacturer will be doing some trials. So before even going to the FDA, they will do some trials. They'll do some, they'll, they'll start with computer models, they'll give them data, and then they'll move on to animal studies to kind of study the effectiveness of the, the vaccine. Once they've gotten to a point where they feel that they have a viable vaccine, they'll apply to the FDA. It's called an investigational new drug application. And when they apply to the, the FDA, we'll, we'll review that and allow them to move to clinical trials. In clinical trials, these are human trials. So they actually use the vaccine on humans. And it's usually a three-phase trial. There's phase one where they kind of use a small amount of people, um, pretty healthy people. And they'll look at sort of the safety and uh, the effectiveness of the vaccine. Then they'll move to phase two where they'll broaden the horizon on, they'll do it more like on several hundred people. They'll look at a, a diversity of different people, of different demographics, different racial backgrounds, different gender, different health conditions. So they're looking at kind of broadening the vaccine use to a lot of different people to see if there's different reactions that occur. Again, looking at the safety and efficacy of it. And then in phase three, they open that up to thousands of people. They kind of broaden the scope and look at it in, in even larger groups of people. Based on those three trials, then they will, those three phases, then they'll go apply to the FDA for what's called a biologics license application. And that will allow them to manufacture and distribute the vaccine. Now, COVID follow what's called the emergency use authorization application. And when you apply using the emergency use authorization application, they allow you to manufacture the vaccine while you're doing the clinical trials. So after you've done the computer models, after you've done the animal studies and applied to the FDA, while you're doing those three phases of clinical trials on humans, they allow you to manufacture the vaccine. They're not guaranteeing you're gonna to get to use it, but they allow you to manufacture it. So by the end of the clinical trials, when you go back to the FDA and present your data, if they find that your vaccine is good, safe, effective, you've already manufactured the vaccine and now you can begin distributing it. And that's how COVID was able to roll out a lot faster than some of the other vaccines was because they were manufacturing the vaccine while the trials were actually occurring. So they didn't cut out any of the clinical trials. There wasn't less studies done. I've heard people, you know, even some friends ask me about that, like, oh, they, they did less, no, they did the same research. They're required to go through the same steps. Things just kind of got fast-tracked. In other words, they were manufacturing the virus while they were doing those trials. And then their application was sort of at the top of the pile. You know, so when they did go back to apply, uh, there was a, an epidemiologist in, in San Francisco that explained it really well and said, really, they just cut out a lot of the bureaucracy on being able to apply and have it reviewed and have the committees go over it. That was a priority. So that got done a lot quicker than, let's say, if it was a different vaccine that wasn't as critical for public health. So all the studies, the critical part of that is that all the studies were done. All the clinical trials were done exactly as they would for any other vaccine or, or drug. Judy, you want to add anything? 
Well, I was going to say, and I heard that though that recently that they are moving very close to full FDA approval. Yes, because I they're continuing they to collect data, and obviously now millions and millions of people have received them. How how well vetted is this now? And that they should be receiving full FDA approval soon. They they and that'll still be much much faster than a normal FDA approval. But you know they weren't ready for a full FDA approval, but they will be very soon. So the, the emergency use authorization is, is like a fast forward. It makes sure everyone is safe. It prevents the spread of the virus, but we're still learning. Like it still takes a little bit longer to get that full approval. And, and that's what we're going through right now, right? So we're, with the full approval, we're going to have a much broader understanding of what the, what the vaccines do. Am I, is, that, is that correct? Yes. After all clinical trials, even when a drug is approved, so let's say outside of the, the COVID, any drug that's approved, there's ongoing monitoring that happens. So just because something's approved doesn't mean, okay, let, let's just happen. They're still required to present studies or present their data back. And usually the CDC kind of takes over the surveillance on that, but then you present back your data to make sure that it, in the real world, it's still effective and it's still years and years later, still showing the effectiveness. So it's the same thing with COVID. So we've gone, we've done the due diligence off, I shouldn't say we, they've done the due diligence. They've done all the studies for it, just like they would normally do. They were just able to manufacture it. So now they're distributing it. Now we're getting the data, we're, especially from Pfizer, we're getting the data from the first responders that were in the one in Illinois, the 1A group. So all that data is coming in and it's all really super positive. So that's being presented back to the, to the FDA pending the full approval. And then this will go on, even if they are fully approved, this data will still be collected, still be monitored and, and still be, um, analyze to make sure that it's still efficient, effective, and safe. Yes, it's ongoing. It really is amazing. I mean, sometimes I think we, we picture like, you know, eight scientists in lab coats sitting in a room in Washington, but there's really this whole apparatus that's built up between the FDA and the CDC that's constantly yep. working and constantly monitoring. Um, so this is probably a good point. Can we talk about the three different um, vaccines that are actually approved in the United States? And maybe um, some of the differences in what we wh where we are with each of them. Sure. I, I'll start off. The the Pfizer was the first one approved, and that's that's the was the one that you know we were also so happy when we finally when that one finally got approval. Pfizer is and Pfizer both Pfizer and Moderna are the mRNA that we spoke of. Um, the difference between the Pfizer and the Moderna is that the Moderna actually has a higher dose of the mRNA in it. Um, it and because of that, it is a little bit more stable is my understanding. So some of the um, some of the restrictions as far as, as how it's stored and transported are a little bit less. There's And the recommended time between those two doses with Moderna is 28 days. With Pfizer, the recommended window between the two doses is 21 days, but they both are mRNA. They both require two doses at this point. There are studies looking at what would happen if we went to one dose. There's studies looking at, okay, so if Pfizer had 100 micrograms dose it per, um, per dose, as opposed to Pfizer had 30 micrograms per dose, you know, which of those was actually the, the best? They're, you know, they're, they're very similar. Um, and then Johnson & Johnson is the third one. And the Johnson & Johnson um, is a single dose, although there are studies now looking at what would happen if we did a single dose of Johnson & Johnson, and then a tiny little re-immunization, re-vaccination um, in a much bigger window. Um, but Johnson & Johnson is right now a single dose vaccine, and, and 
like we alluded to earlier, it's a little bit different. It, it isn't actually injecting the mRNA, it's injecting a uh, attenuated or altered virus. So Peter, you can go into more detail then. Oh, that's great. I think that was a, a great synopsis of the three vaccines. The um, common side effects are pretty similar, especially between the Moderna and the Pfizer. Um, typically injection site pain is very common. So uh, <laughs> some of my friends call it vaccine arm, you know, their, their arm hurts for a few days afterwards. Cause it's an IM, it's an intramuscular injection, injection. So it's going right into a muscle. So that can be a sore for a few days. Fatigue and headaches are another very common side effect for it. Uh, muscle aches and then chills and fever are a little bit less common with that. But the side effect profiles for both, well, actually for all three, are very mild. Um, they're not serious reactions. The the one reaction that you're really concerned about is an anaphylactic reaction, a severe allergic reaction. And that's the one that you're the most worried about in giving the vaccines. I think with the Pfizer, if I read correctly, out of 18 million doses, there was 11 anaphylactic reactions, no fatalities, but 11 people had severe allergic reactions to it out of 18 million. Um, that's pretty good. That's, that's <laughs> pretty, amazing. Phenomenal. But that's why if you get a vaccine, they'll usually have you stay there for about 15 minutes because the reaction, that, that allergic reaction tends to happen very quickly. So um, they'll usually have you hang out for about 15 minutes just to make sure you have that. But that's really the most serious reaction that we're seeing so far. Another, three. another difference between the three that I meant to point out is, as I alluded to, the Moderna and Pfizer have very stringent guidelines. They have to be kept very cold. Not every doctor's office or clinic has the capability to store those vaccines like they should. Johnson & Johnson, because it's a DNA instead of an mRNA, the guidelines are um, less restrictive, so it's more easily stored and it. it sort of has a longer shelf life, which makes it easier to distribute. I mean, if you think of some of the rural areas of middle America where there may not be a, a place within miles that could store the Pfizer vaccine at the extreme cold um, conditions that, it, that are required, whereas Johnson & Johnson, any doctor's office freezer would, would reach the uh, temperatures that it needs. Yeah, just yeah. to add on to that, like out by me, I'm not really necessarily a rural area, but out by me, there was a problem with the refrigeration. So we were seeing a lot more of the Moderna because you could keep them at a regular refrigerated temperature, which most pharmacies had for up to 30 days. So we were seeing a lot more Moderna vaccine in our area because of, you know, the less, the lower refrigeration requirements to store it uh, compared to Pfizer. And just one more question related to this kind of development of the vaccines. We've, I've, I've often heard in the media, um, the term efficacy thrown around. Can you help us understand what that means? <laughs> Does it do what it's supposed Judy? to do? Does it do what it's supposed to do? So in, in, the, in regards to a vaccine, does it prevent you from getting the illness? Um, that's, the, that's the rigid term of it. And that's where some people have said, well, Johnson & Johnson isn't, doesn't have the efficacy, but that, that's getting the disease at all. Johnson & Johnson has been extremely effective, as effective as the others, in keeping people out of the hospital and off ventilators, which is in the end our end result. So, so although, so, maybe there with all three there are always going to be people who still get COVID, even though they got vaccinated with any vaccination there's always some people whose immune system doesn't respond the way we expected it to but with johnson and johnson maybe there's a few more people who get actually get the disease but um as far as being hospitalized or ending up in the icu on the ventilator johnson and johnson um, 
the, those people do not end up in the hospital or on the ventilator either. So um, efficacy, the, the rigid definition is do they get the disease or not? And so then Johnson & Johnson was a little bit lower. Just on another thing with Johnson & Johnson, remember that they were, they were developed later and so the studies began later. They were also studied, they also studied um, for these initial phases, a greater number of people across the world. And so some of these new strains, these more um, virulent strains, some of which do not respond to this vaccine as well, some of those were already out there when the Johnson & Johnson um, phase one, phase two, phase three studies were being done. So they think that that also affected the efficacy. So if you went back and studied some of these others under the same conditions, there's their rigid efficacy numbers might be a little bit lower too. My neighbor just asked me about that too, was confused about the numbers and seeing different numbers and didn't understand what effectiveness, like there is reading effectiveness versus efficacy. Efficacy is determined during the clinical trials. So what they do is they compare in the clinical trials, you have a control group that does not receive the vaccine and are in a, another group that does receive the vaccine and they compare the two. So efficacy is the percentage of people that don't get COVID that are in the uh, vaccinated group. So what you're looking at is if you have the vaccinated group, when comparing it to the non-vaccinated group, what percentage of the people were not getting COVID? Um, I'll, I read that the CDC or the uh, FDA was looking for 50% efficacy. That's what they were hoping for, which means there'd be a 50% reduction. Your chances of getting COVID in, as a vaccinated person would be 50% less than a non-vaccinated person. They thought that's great. Most vaccines were between 40 and 60% efficacy. Mm -hmm. The three vaccines we have blow that out of the water. So, I mean, you've got Moderna and Pfizer that are in the 90% and Johnson and Johnson, which like Judy said, you know, it's a little bit lower. It's in the 70%. It was way over what they thought it would be. So those are phenomenal. That means you have a 70% chance, less chance of getting COVID as a vaccinated person versus somebody that's unvaccinated. I mean, that's phenomenal. It really is. And, you know, it is interesting. We, we kind of treat vaccination as like this on-off thing. You take the pill, you've got it, or you haven't taken the pill, you don't got it. But it, it is, as you've said, it's a reaction. And there's a lot of variables that go into that. So there's, you know, some people won't develop the, the same level of protection, right? And we, we need to keep that in our mind that it's, it is a biological process and not just this like magic wand that hits you and right. protects you, right? So... And let me add one real quick thing to that. That efficacy number is based on the clinical trials. So then what they need to do is see how it's out in the real world. So now that they're actually giving vaccines, all that data is coming in to see what the actual effectiveness is. And the actual effectiveness is even higher than those numbers. So yes. Johnson and Johnson first responders, numbers in the close to 100%. Yes, that's correct for all of them. That's just great. Um, well, thank you very much. Okay, well, actually, I had a question specifically for Judy. Um, Judy, I know you volunteered uh, to administer the vaccine. Um, could you share a little bit about your experience um, doing that and maybe give us some insights um, into what folks can expect um, when they go to like to a vaccine vaccination clinic? Yes, um, I was able to volunteer at a vaccination clinic at one of our clinical sites where our, we take our nursing students. And that was in January when Pfizer was the only um, vaccine that was available and it, it was a very positive experience. I did it before we began our this semester. So it was when we were still on Christmas break and it was the first wave of vaccines. So when, and because it was at a hospital, 
people would come in and, and would check in, and I'm sure it's this way at others. So you have to check in and first your screen to make sure that you don't have any um, contraindications to receive the vaccine. And you're taught some of the side effects and there's some teaching that goes on. And then there's documentation because we wanna track everyone who's had this, um, this vaccine. And once the, the record keeping is done and they, they fill out that initial little card that everybody wants that has their, their information on it, then um, they were sent to we nurses who were administering the vaccine, which we again re went through some of the checklists to make sure that there were no contraindications to them receiving the vaccine. I can tell you that in that room where we were vaccinating, it was a very positive vibe because again, this was in January and these people were the first wave of those being vaccinated. Um, lots and lots of selfies, um, the doctors, the nurses, the entire healthcare team, whether they were working in dietary or housekeeping or um, you know, one of the therapy departments, no matter what it was, they were all there together, sitting there giving each other thumbs up while we were injecting them. And we had multiple stations set up. So there was a lot of activity. Once they were injected, then they were moved to an observation area, like you said, where they were asked to stay there for 15 minutes. And most of them were on and were still, you know, taking selfies um, while they were sitting there for the 15 minutes to make sure that there were no reactions. And then they were allowed to go on with their day. Um, there were some members of the community that were there as well, but it, it was overall a very positive um, thing. And then two weeks later, we came back to do the second round for these same people. And for some, it was their first round. But again, they were so excited, most of them, to be receiving their second um, vaccine and um, to be able to move on with their life. There were, there were some people that were teary even while they were receiving it. I think that excitement is still... Um it's it's still around. I, I got my first dose last week and it was just like people were smiling all over the place, even through masks, you could tell. <laughs> um, there were there were two older women. I still wish I had taken a picture of them, older, older, much older than me. And they got together and they held their cards up and had us take a picture of them, the two of them with their cards with both injections. They were just so excited because now they were going to be able to see their grandchildren and travel and do all the things that they hadn't been doing in the past year, after two weeks, two weeks after their second Well, so it's a it's been um, exciting and, and liberating in many ways to for people who are getting the vaccine. Um, but there's there's been some confusion around the rollout, and maybe it's been a little scattered. Um, I don't know from the perspective of a healthcare provider. Is there any? Can you comment at all on um, some factors that affect the rollout? Um, what can we learn about this for future vaccine rollouts? We're learning a lot. I can tell you that. Because, I, I mean, even what we're doing now with the massive rollout, because now the number, you know, we're getting more and more vaccines available and we're able to give more. What, yesterday, I think they said 3.1 million per day the United States is administering now. So the ability to do that, we did not have that in January, which, you know, that maybe was, um, isn't an indictment of us that we weren't ready for that. But I think we've all learned a lot about the logistics of distributing it storing it and administering it and keeping records of what's going on. It's a very complicated thing. And then, then there, and we haven't even touched on the disparity issues that you wanted to be sure that the vaccine was available to those who were most affected by it. And many times they were in areas where maybe they weren't able to get to um, places where you normally would be distributing a vaccine. So we, we had lots of, there were many layers of things to be considered in the distribution of this. And there, there was a time period there where it was frustrating because there was so much vaccine and storage that we were hearing about. 
but we were having difficulty getting appointments or getting in. I think some of those layers are starting to fall away now and, it, and it's becoming more available. But I think that everyone has learned a lot and hopefully, you know, the next time we'll have a much smoother unrolling of this. Well, thank you. Um, Troy? Well, I think it's time to pull Laura into this conversation. She's been sitting so patiently. So thank you, Laura, for your patience as we've set, set up the kind of basics around vaccines. Um, let's let's shift gears then and talk about the psychology um, with our expert um, and maybe to think about how um, the folks in the psychology world think about vaccines and especially, you know, some of the vaccine resistance that's out there. Yeah, well, thank you. Um, so I, I think that it's really, really important when we think about how people are processing this information and processing the pandemic. Um, I think it's really important to recognize that although we all feel like we are completely rational and logical, um, maybe other people aren't, but we're all rational and logical, that that really is not the case uh, in, in a lot of our thinking. Uh, most of our day-to-day -day behaviors, uh, most of our, our thinking um, really follows shortcuts, um, things that social psychologists call heuristics. Um, and, and that's because it would be really overwhelming for us to rationally and logically process all of the information that comes at us all of the time. We wouldn't be able to get out the door you know, in the morning, we wouldn't be able to to do our jobs or interact with other people if we were rationally and logically processing every bit of information. And so there are all these shortcuts that we take um, and, and they're usually pretty helpful for us. You know, they they help us sort through stuff that's important to us and get rid of the stuff that's not. Um, but unfortunately, they can lead us um, again to not think rationally and and to think in kind of predictably irrational ways. Um, and so uh, I think a lot of um, how these heuristics are employed, um, or I should say deployed, um, depends upon the, the group that you uh, are embedded within. Um, so what I mean by that is, you know, if, if you uh, are maybe uh, a scientist and your friends are scientists and you watch science shows and you listen to science-based media, um, you're going to be hearing a lot of information um, that's positive about the vaccines. A lot of the things that, that everybody has been discussing here, you've already heard it. Um, and you process that information, um, you know, using, uh, like you're you're focusing on the information that's consistent with what you already believe. Um, however, if you are embedded in a, a group of people, if your community around you um, really focuses on conspiracy theories or distrust of government or uh, distrust of authorities, um, you're going to be hearing and seeing uh, a lot of media, um, a lot of posts that are not accurate. Um, and it can be difficult to parse through that when you are embedded within it um, because you're paying attention to what's right in front of you. You're not necessarily logically thinking it through. Um, instead, you are just um, 
focused on what your group, what your tribe, what your community believes. Um, and it can lead to some real big disparities um, in how people are seeing COVID um, and in how people are seeing the vaccine. Um, I, I just actually got a link to a subreddit. I don't know if you guys are how familiar you are with Reddit, but I just got a link to subreddit from a friend uh, just yesterday um, that's really focused on um, anti-vaccine information and, um, you know, that, that COVID is really just the flu and, you know, it's a big conspiracy. And, and I mean, it's just, it's post after post after post after post after post. And you, you have all of this confirmation coming at you. Um, it can be difficult to pull yourself out of that. I don't know if, if uh, Judy or Pete want to add anything. Make sure you jump in if you want. If not, it's okay. I, I do think it's interesting. Um, you know, it's, it's an interesting kind of thing that I, I think we deal with all the time, but we don't necessarily recognize it where we don't get to live two lives and then figure out which decision is better. So I'm going to not get vaccinated and see what happens. And I'm going to get vaccinated and see what happens, right? I, you have to make a decision with the information um, at hand. And so, I mean, I find it understandable in some ways that people are hesitant because once you get that jab in your arm, you can't just pull that out. Um, and and I've, I've had friends say to me, you know, I'm going to wait and see how, um, what happens with everybody else. And I mean, I guess, I guess there's, um, I, I wanted to ask, you know, about that inherent um, kind of skepticism and when is the skepticism healthy? And then when does, when does it take a turn um, towards unhealthiness, right? And I, I mean, anyone that's had little kids, you know, and you have to take your children to get vaccinated, that's been a hot debate for, for several decades. I mean, for a long time, as long as vaccines have been around, people have been spreading um, mistruths and, and misunderstandings about vaccines. So, sorry, kind of a convoluted question, but I, I'm interested in that idea of being skeptical and when skeptic, skepticism is healthy and then... Um, when it becomes unhealthy and you know, or I don't know if you big, have, yep. Go ahead, well, what, go ahead. One big group of skeptics, one big group of skeptics are scientists. Scientists. Yeah, like, absolutely. You wouldn't think it, you think, oh, but scientists are huge skeptics. That's why they follow the scientific method. They don't just take things on faith. They go and they test it. They observe the things they see and then they test it and then they try and repeat the test. And then other people repeat the test to see before we truly believe in that. And even at that point, your most hardcore scientist still doesn't believe it totally says, well, this is the best we have going for now at this point, but well, we're going to continue to test it over time and allow that thought to evolve. So um, I think that's the biased, I'm, sci I'm more science-based, I think that that's sort of the way that I kind of try and look at the vaccines. I wasn't completely 100% confident that there would be a vaccine, a viable vaccine, like back last March when we were talking and I'm thinking coronavirus vaccine in a year, no way. I thought it would take years to develop that. So when it did come out, I wasn't like, yep, this is the, you know, I went through the process of looking at it, researching it, but when you look at it through those eyes and Laura brings up awesome points about, you know, the way we look at things and the way that we're exposed to things can, can shape our perception of how we look at the facts. And there are different ways to look at the facts, but when I looked at the facts, I, I was super impressed with what I was seeing. And I was surprised at how well, the how 
positive the data was for things. So I think if you try and look at it through fresh eyes like that, I think you can come to conclusions. And also, there's a famous saying, trust but verify, you know? trust what you're taking in, but but still verify and still do your own due diligence and still look at your own research and come out of your, whatever your perceptive bubble is and be able to look at different sources and see if they're saying the same things. Yeah, I, I think that you make an absolutely several excellent points. Um, and, and to your um, comment about skepticism, Troy, you know, I, I hear that a lot in the conspiracy theory community. And um, I hear a lot of people talk about, do your own research, you know, but the kind of research that they're talking about is different than the kind of research that maybe we're talking about. You know, we're talking about maybe looking up um, information in scientific journals, or if not the scientific journals themselves, at least um, highly respected science media, you know, when when people who are really deep in the ra- down the rabbit hole with conspiracy theories talk about doing their own research, they're talking about getting information from other conspiracy theory websites. They're talking about getting non-verified blog posts. They're talking about hearing about this person's cousin's wife's daughter who knows this person who this bad thing happened to. Um, and it's uh, it's very driven by anecdotes. It's very driven by personal stories, uh, personal narratives. This is what happened to me. You can believe me, but you can't believe those scientists because they're they've all been bought off. Um, and so I think we're paying attention to different sources. So you know I think it's an excellent point that science is founded on skepticism. And, and you have to be skeptical if you are a scientist. Um, but at some point, you know, you, you are looking at the information, the data that are in front of you. And at some point you have to say, this is what the data are showing um, and come to a conclusion. And it's an ever evolving conclusion. And, and that's something that I think a lot of people who aren't scientists get upset about and are confused about with science is that it's always changing, right? So one year margarine is good for us and then another year it's the devil. Um, You know, we should be having butter, we should be having less butter. Maybe we should start cooking with lard again. You know, these these one-off science stories come up and um, people think, well, that's the end, that's the final answer. And, And that's not the case with science. You know, science is is always evolving. It's always building. It's changing. Um, so, so yes, uh, just like you said, you know, to be um, to verify. You know, you you have to verify the information first um, before you can fully trust it. One one thing that I've always thought is interesting from an information literacy perspective is that. You know, in the general kind of discussion, mm-hmm. facts are kind of treated as these concrete, solid, unchanging things. Right. But scientists don't really treat facts in that way or knowledge in that way, right? They, they treat knowledge more as like a measurement. And as measurement gets better and we get new tools to measure, we learn new things. And the old facts that we used to hang on to um, change and adapt and become broader and become more detailed. Um, and so sometimes I feel like 
we do ourselves a disservice, um, you know, maybe it's within our education system, I don't know, or just how the brain is wired, but we want these solid things to hold on to. And what we need to is like recalibrate how we think about knowledge in some ways, not to go on the philosophical tangent, but I think that is a useful, useful way to think about it. Oh, Judy, you're on mute. Sorry. That's why studying science and scientific um, inquiry is so important. There's a quote that says science is inherently self-correcting. So, I mean, knowing that, it implies that we we operate from the truth as we know it, from what science has showed us at this point. I mean, and then once, and the science keeps questioning, science keeps testing, and then you might might found out another truth, so now you operate from that truth. I mean, like Galileo, when he thought that he was trying to question whether the earth was the center of the universe and he was punished as a heretic, but eventually science proved that he was right and we moved on from there. And I mean, there's many, many scientific principles that through the years have been, that were accepted as fact. And then eventually science disproved it. That And, it, and the willingness to constantly question and re-examine um, accepted facts is part of science. This is probably a good point to mention, and, and Judy, you had mentioned this earlier, um, that COVID has really demonstrated some of the disparities in our healthcare system and has really um, had a major impact, especially on black and brown communities, a real unequal impact on black and brown communities. And you know that's not a direction that we're going super deep in today, but I wanted to mention, we had a really excellent conversation about this last summer um, that Tish Hayes and I moderated with um, several of our nursing faculty and um, and uh, Amy Williamson from psychology about some of the history behind the distrust, especially um, uh, by people of color within of the medical community and with, with some good reasons behind that, of course, and then how we might be able to overcome that. So I just want to mention that and encourage anyone watching now to take a look at the library YouTube channel. Um, look at our playlist um, about COVID, and you will find um, a, a discussion about um, health disparities um, and COVID, um, especially with some of our nursing faculty who were in ICU units, you know, on the front lines last summer when things were, were really, really bad. And so um, I want to just give that shout out in commercial um, for that event. It was a really great uh, discussion. So, um, so thank you. And I'll turn it over. Hannah's got the next question. Sure. So while we've been talking about some of the maybe societal or cultural um, reasons that people are skeptical of <clears throat> vaccines and science, but um, there are um, reasons that people may not be able to get the vaccine. Um, Judy or Peter, do you either of you want to talk about some of some of this, maybe the from a medical yes. perspective? Sure. Not everyone is able to get the vaccine. There's, there's some situations, for instance, if you've recently gotten another vaccine, so say someone recently got their MMR booster or something like that, they're not to get the COVID vaccine within, I believe it's two weeks of getting another type of a vaccine. So if you've recently been vaccinated for something else, then you wouldn't be a candidate for it. If you've had an anaphylactic reaction previously to a vaccine, these vaccines are in carriers. Um, one of the carriers in the vaccines, <clears throat> excuse me, is polyethylene glycol. That's a common carrier. So if you've had an anaphylactic or a severe reaction to another um, vaccine, it may be that, that you are allergic to one of the carriers. Certainly if you've had an anaphylactic reaction to the first of the two steps, then you wouldn't go back and get the second um, vaccine. If you currently are sick with COVID, 
you're not to get the vaccine. They're suggesting that um, two weeks, two weeks after you get sick, you can get the vaccine. So even like if you got, even if you get, say you get a Moderna vaccine and then several days later come down with COVID because you weren't completely um, immune yet, because the COVID, the Moderna are over two weeks apart, you may not even have to change your your date. So you know if you come down with COVID in between the two, that you know you might have to change the second one, but you can still get the second one. If you currently have COVID, though, you, you should not go get the first one until you are completely clear of um, the COVID symptoms and um, the COVID virus. There's some other people like initially they were there. The tests are still being done on pregnant women, but now the tests are showing that maybe the COVID virus is more dangerous to pregnant women and that perhaps we should really be encouraging pregnant women to get the um, vaccine. So at this point, it's, you know, talk to your obstetrician, but um, where initially they said, no, pregnant women shouldn't get it. Now they've kind of changed and they're saying, no, maybe we should encourage um, women who are pregnant to get it. So you'll, you're going to need to converse with your physician about that. Right now, age is one of the, the hardest um, cutoffs because the, the vaccines are not approved for those that are under 16, although there are lots of tests being done, like 12 to 15, they're saying that's going to be the next group it opens to is down to 12, and they are currently testing even younger, and eventually I think that those will, that even younger will be approved, but for right now, if you're under 16, you're not going to be able to get the vaccine, of course, unless you're part of one of these studies. Um, immunosuppressed patients need to talk with their physicians because, of course, this whole vaccine process that we've discussed depends on your immune system gearing up and responding to the vaccine. And some people, because they're immunocompromised, their immune system may have a difficult time doing that. Um, I think that's I think that's it. Autoimmune diseases too kind of fall into that same category. They're they're still yeah. recommending them, but the efficacy is not as established with it. So the research is a little murky on it. Always check with your doctor if you have a specific question or a specific process. But yeah, the, the age is, is and history of anaphylaxis is probably the biggest one. Biggest ones. Always good advice. Check with your healthcare provider. <laughs> um, well, so as more and more of us um, are vaccinated, it raises some, I guess, some issues about privacy and some ethical issues. Um, for example, just kind of widely posing this. Um, given that, um, you know, vaccines are approved for emergency use and they're going to be fully approved by the FDA soon, um, can, do we think that employers will be able to require that employees get vaccines or how, how do you all feel about that? That's, that's a question that's out there. I mean, there, there's a lot of debate about this because like we've talked about, this does not these vaccines do not have full FDA approval yet. So they're, um, as long as they're under EUA, emergency use authorization, it's a little bit more of a gray zone. Once they have full FDA approval, even then it's difficult. For instance, you know, I'm a nurse and most hospitals will well require their employees to get the influenza shot so that we don't spread it if, it's, if there's a surge of it during the winter months. But there are healthcare employees who do not get the vaccine. So if some of them, it's a religious reason, some of them, it's a medical reason. And so then they're still able to work, but then they always would, would have to wear a mask or things like that. I did see that there's a cruise line, and I don't think it's an American cruise line, that is requiring it of all of their employees, as well as anyone that would enter their ship. So it may not 
an American cruise line, but um, so so it started. There's an employer that, that's requiring um, full vaccination for COVID before you can work for them. Uh, we'll see what the future brings, though. There's a lot of points of contention within that. I, I was looking at this. Uh, I read an article by a, a labor attorney for the U of I uh, from U of I Champaign, and they asked him the same question, can employers mandate it? And he said he thinks so. Um, the, <laughs> So just so you know, the CDC does not regulate or mandate vaccines. It kind of comes to the state level. Um, there have been points in history where employers or state institutions were able to vaccinate people. Um, the, uh, there was a case in 1905, which is, according to that attorney, the pending case that still it's, it was upheld in 1922. Uh, Jacobson versus Massachusetts went all the way to the Supreme Court. It was a, a, a Swedish pastor who for religious reasons said I did not want to be vaccinated for smallpox. At the time, Boston had a huge outbreak of smallpox and was mandating everybody has to get vaccinated for smallpox. And he lost the case. This was, they, uh, the Supreme Court upheld that the, the state of Massachusetts had the right to vaccinate. Um, and, that's, and then that was again challenged in 1922 and it was still upheld. So uh, Michael Roy says that's kind of the case that it could fall back to if anybody questioned it. In 2018, there's a federal case, um, kind of similar to what you were talking, Judy. I did the same thing for nursing school. I was required to get Hep A vaccines, have my MMR vaccines, everything up. There was a, a healthcare worker who refused the MMR and sued the employer, the employer terminator, and she said. Um, uh, she took it to the courts. It was a, a, a federal court, but it wasn't Supreme Court. And they said it was okay is for the employer to terminate as long as the vaccine was job-related and followed consistent business necessity. And those were the two key things that the attorney that did this interview kind of keyed in on for future possible legislation. If uh, companies started mandating it and people started suing back that the two things that the courts right now are looking at are job related and consistent with business necessity. There's always a couple of exemptions that have always kind of historically been in place. And you mentioned it, Judy, religious and medical. So if you have sort of different medical conditions or religious objections, as long as you're able to modify, like wear masks or social distance, as long as you're in an industry where you can do those things to offset the risk, that's okay, but those are the two exemptions that are normally kind of historically been in place to allow people to not be vaccinated when it was mandated. Yeah. No doubt we will see some legal cases about this as it moves through. I saw in the mid 1800s in Britain, they required smallpox vaccine and there was a parent who refused to vaccinate, because Troy, you mentioned it with kids, refused to vaccinate their children. And they, and this was in Britain, they passed a law that they, the parents could be imprisoned if they did not vaccinate their children. I, I don't think it would go that far, but um, in our history. Well, thank you. This is something I think we'll all think about much more as, as more people are vaccinated. And, you know, as we're thinking about that, I, I'd like to pull Laura back in a little bit here and talk about the idea of uh, media bubbles and how this impacts our trust in vaccines. You, you mentioned a little bit about this, but can you help us you know, flush the idea out a little bit more? Sure, so um, 
the information that you hold, the knowledge that you have is a result of, you know, what you're seeing on a daily basis. Um, and uh, most of us now are connected to new information through, through social media platforms. Um, they might be um, different, you know, a variety of different apps. Um, there's also a wide variety of different news channels as well um, to serve the needs of different kinds of preferences. Um, the problem with that, of course, is that uh, you can choose which media, of course, you know, you want to consume, um, but then also that that media is chosen for you within these social media apps as well. Um, and so what ends up happening is that you only get exposed to certain kinds of stories. You only get exposed to stories that um, are consistent with your point of view and with your friends' points of view. And, you know, often, you know, the people that you have in your friend's circle um, are people that you agree with because it's uncomfortable to talk to people that you disagree with every day. And so... You know, when, when you have maybe old friends or family members that, that disagree with you, you tend to distance yourself from them, uh, maybe not talk about these things as much because it's uncomfortable to feel like uh, someone that you care about disagrees with you. So as a result, what ends up happening is that um, you are exposed to information that is consistent with your viewpoint. You're not given information that is different from what you already believe. And then you talk to other people about the same information and they tell you information that's also consistent with your viewpoint. And as a result, you're never challenged on your beliefs. You're never challenged on things that you are just assuming as fact because everybody around you believes this same thing. You know, when you look at some of the deeper conspiracies like a uh, flat earth conspiracy, um, it used to be that, uh, you know, pre-internet times, because this came about before the internet, uh, it, was, it was tough to hold that kind of viewpoint. You know, you had to constantly argue with other people about it. Um, and it, it, was, it was really tough to maintain. Um, and, and it wasn't as popular, um, I think, because of that. But with the internet um, and with social media, um, you can find thousands of other people who have the same point of view. You don't have to talk to people who have a different point of view. And the social media platforms um, have algorithms that point you in the direction of things that they know that you're going to agree with because we spend more time on social media when we are being told that we're right. It feels good to be right. So we're seeing you know, news stories, news stories, I'll put it in quotation marks, um, you know, that are consistent with our beliefs. We're getting, um, we're seeing posts from other people, uh, testimonials, anecdotes, and everything like that, that are consistent. And that's what a media bubble is. Media bubble is you're just getting information that is consistent with your beliefs and your point of view. Um, and unfortunately, um, you know, it only serves to further embed you in those beliefs and you're no longer thinking critically about them um, and you're no longer um, questioning them. Um, and, and obviously that can be a real problem. 
a, a major information literacy challenge I think we have today. So yeah, thank you so much. So I think um, <clears throat> building on the idea of the information that people get um, about, about the vaccine and about COVID, um, and I, I think maybe Peter and Judy, you touched on this a little bit earlier, but I think it, it might be worth coming back to. Um, so we, you know, we've talked about how um, scientists get, you know, work with the information they have now and they work to continue to get more information and use um, new tools uh, and new processes to gain, to, to learn more and to understand better. Um, as a non-scientist, <laughs> um, how, how would you recommend that people outside of the scientific community who are involved, um, how, how should we approach um, information from organizations like the CDC um, as it does change? I, I think that just as Laura was saying, you you have to be open, look at a variety of, of sources and understand that like we were saying, science moves forward and sometimes as it moves forward, it finds that some of the previous assumptions were not correct or some things that, they, that, that we felt had been proven without a doubt. Actually, as we move, move forward, we proved that that assumption was not correct or what that maybe perhaps that fact wasn't correct. So, we have to be open. I know last spring when um, there was information, it was the CDC was coming out with, sometimes it seemed like contradictory information day after day after day, but can you imagine if they said, no, wait, we're not gonna say anything until we absolutely know for sure. There would have been a huge period of time where we would have received no information at all from the CDC. So they were courageously releasing the information as it became known to them and sometimes yes, one thing would seem to contradict another and even now things are changing week to week um and and we have to understand that and we have to go with it that that as as more information comes in more information comes in and and it may change what our thinking is and i just want to jump in and and just mention that changing ideas is not a weakness um i i think that it is sometimes viewed that way um, and, and, and that's not at all the case. I mean, that, that again, it's a very foundation of science um, is that information and our ideas evolve uh, and, and even really basic things, you know, change over time. And as we get more information, um, Judy, I think, you know, what you said about being courageous is, is right on the money. Um, you know, it's, it, it does take courage to come out and say, we were wrong. We were wrong about masks. Um, you know, this is why we thought that it was a bad idea. We now have more information and we are now changing our guidance. You know, the, the cowardly way out would have been, the weak way out would have been to just hold on to your position um, no matter what, no matter what new information came. Um, I, I think um, it, it's, it's a different kind of perspective and, and it's an unhealthy perspective to suggest that um, change is weakness. Right? Change is inherent in everything, um, including information and knowledge. Absolutely. Can I just jump in and say, I have a good friend who will use that and say, well, they're gonna change their mind, so why should I believe in any of it? And, and the thing that I always have to say to him is, 
Well, then you could believe in anything. Like if you if you don't have at least some effort at evidence, then you just are throwing the cards up in the air and seeing where they land, right? So, so like just because we change our mind, like you said, it's not weakness. Just because we change our mind doesn't mean that we throw away everything that's said. Yeah, we might get better information, and some things we say now might not be be correct or might need to be altered. But it doesn't mean that everything we're saying now just gets thrown away and you can just right. do whatever you want. And that's sometimes I see that like where that that's that point where that skepticism gets so poisonous that I'm not going to believe anything because who knows what's right and what's wrong. Well, we have a pretty good sense of what is is on target, you know, and, and some of it will change. So I'll throw that in. Okay, I think we're ready for me to move. We're moving along. Sorry. <laughs> um, there is a recent article from the journal Nature, which is one of the most highly reputable scientific publications out there, um, by Nikki Phillips. And, and in this article, the author concluded that the coronavirus is here to stay. The coronavirus is not going away and that we're never going to get to a point of COVID equals zero um, in our society, which I think is a little frightening, perhaps. And I, I wanted to just ask our three experts, um, you know, how do you think about the future and how do you envision at this point from what we know, you know, what is your vision for how we live with um, COVID and coronavirus? I, I think they're right. COVID is here to stay, but we, we live with many other viruses that, that we haven't reached a zero point with measles, mumps, rubella. I mean, we, we received vaccines and boosters for those as well. And I think that the um, SARS-CoV-2 is going to be another one of those viruses that is around. And um, we, we, over time, we develop methods of dealing with it. And maybe as these new strains become available, we have to alter the vaccine and get a, get a booster just like we do with influenza each year. Yep. I, I agree with you, Judy. And I think as these we, we hear about the variants, the, the four different variants that are out right now, you know, likely they will have to, this is my prediction, that they'll develop booster vaccines for those variants. It may become like a seasonal flu kind of thing where you get your flu shot every year or, you know, um, we'll just have to see how it mutates. What I read from the CDC is that they're just not sure at this point. They're the it's murky with the variant. Certain vaccines are somewhat effective against them. Some are not as effective. The research is kind of coming in, so they're not sure, but it'll likely mean that they'll have to modify vaccines or provide boosters to those in the future. That's what I would predict would happen. On the upside, I, I did read that these mRNA vaccines may be able to carry mRNA, so that, that lipid molecule may be able to carry mRNA from a number of different diseases. So you wouldn't have to get so many different vaccines. You'd get one that would carry mRNA of multiple diseases going to your cells. Your cells would, would produce something that would help your body to develop the antibodies that would fight those specific diseases. So out of COVID may come a new way of vaccinating us where we may not need to receive as many pokes, so to say. <laughs> All right, thanks. Well, um, I guess we'll, it's about time for us to wrap up, um, but let's just conclude by, um, I'm gonna offer you all a chance to offer any final thoughts or ideas. I, 
I think I would say get the vaccine. No, and and you know we've talked about Johnson and Johnson. We've talked about Moderna. We've talked about Pfizer. Whatever you can get, whichever vaccine, please get it. Um, it's it's you know thirty million people have gotten it so far, and um, like Pete alluded to, there's been very minimal side effects. It's safe, and it, it can make a difference in your life. I think I would just add in, if you have someone in your life who is anti-vaccine or who is maybe questioning the vaccine, um, I, I would just say proceed with caution. Um, there is a, a you know, somewhat well-known effect called the backfire effect. It's also called reactance, that when you um, argue with someone about a core belief that they have, um, they tend to not only put up walls and not hear and process what you're saying, but their belief in their original idea can grow, it can become stronger. So their anti-vax platform can become stronger because you are arguing with them. Um, so I would say tread with caution, um, don't attack. Um, you know, if you have someone in your life who is anti-vax, um, be respectful. Um, don't call names, you know, uh, and I would focus more actually on um, personal stories um, and situations of people who did not get vaccinated, um, who experienced really severe coronavirus um, and, and had really bad outcomes. Um, some recent research, and again, you know, this is ever evolving, right? But some recent research suggests that if you focus more on the disease itself, um, you are more likely to change minds than if you just give people lots of facts about how safe the vaccine is, um, that focusing on the kind of the horrors of the disease uh, gets through more than the vaccine is safe information. Um, and then we also know that giving personal anecdotes and personal stories um, change people's minds a lot more, even though that's completely irrational. Um, it changes people's minds more than reading, you know, or hearing about a scientific study where 100,000 people, you know, had this happen to them and, you know, they, they had no bad effects. They, they got the vaccine, no bad effects. That information doesn't stick. Um, but hearing about the person who maybe turned the vaccine down and then um, they got COVID, you know, a few weeks later and they were hospitalized and, you know, all these bad things happened. That's the kind of thing that sticks with people. Um, so, again, you know, if you have someone who's anti-vax in your life and you're looking to change their mind, um, you know, remember, it's, it's no guarantee that you can change their mind. Be sure you don't attack. Be respectful and go after the the disease itself as opposed to uh, the safety of the vaccine. At least that, that's where the research stands right now in psych. It, it seems like the people that are the long haulers that get COVID and have to deal with, like have, have bad outcomes for months and months, yeah. where the typical case might be a 10-day, two-week kind of thing. That to me is very compelling um, kind of stories for people that are resistant where they're weighing that risk because the long haulers, they, they still don't understand and why certain people have it and certain people don't it's so random and it could be any of us and so right. to me that's very compelling a uh, good compelling reason to get vaccinated for sure yeah i would just say um i mean i'm 
I'm pretty positive on the vaccines with the research that I've seen. I think it, it it's has a positive individual effect and a, a positive societal from a public health perspective effect. But I do understand skeptics. I, I have friends that are skeptical, uh, quite frankly, have family members that are skeptical. So I, I know people very personally and intimately that have, you know, that are, that are not anti-vax necessarily, but are skeptical. And so I'll direct my last comment to the skeptics, as we were talking about before, scientists are big skeptics. Scientists don't just take things on faith. And I would never ask anybody to just take things on faith or watch a panel and these people said vaccines good, so we should go do it. Trust, but verify, go through the process of science. Look at your observations, look at what you're seeing, research it, research it from various perspectives. Don't just look at just the perspectives maybe you, you, you're you used to look at the perspectives, a broad perspective from lots of different sources, analyze that data, take it in and be open, open-minded, have a diversity of thought of willingness to look at things from different angles than what you were, what your mind has ingrained you to be. You know what I mean? And I think uh, Laura could probably tell us about psych, a psychological thing where people are just stubbornly stuck in their thought. And even they don't even know why they're just kind of stuck in the thought. And this is what I believe. And I believed it for so long. And this is just be open, be open to the observations you have, be open to what people are saying, trust, but verify and follow that method of science. And I think you'll see some pretty good data out there. And just okay. to piggyback on what you said, um, I, I just thought I'd throw out there, be careful about the sites that you are doing your research on. Um, because there are there's so many different sites out there, um, and and a lot of them have really bad information, um, and so it's important to maybe look for some third party sites that rate and evaluate uh, news organizations uh, in terms of level of bias, and see if you can find some that are more middle of the road, um, that are known for being trustworthy, that have been verified by you know, panels of media experts, um, as opposed to just, um, you know, typing in um, safety of the vaccine into Google, because, you know, like, I don't want to sound conspiracy theorist here, but I mean, Google does have information on all of us, and, and they know what you are looking for. Um, and, you know, they're going to give you information that's consistent with how you already believe. And so when you do your research, make sure that it's from trustworthy sites that are, you know, have been examined by, by, by people who, who know how to evaluate um, the news. You know, are they sourcing their information properly, et cetera. And of course, this is probably a good opportunity to say, come to your library. Your librarians <laughs> are very happy. Uh, to help you with your research and to help you understand the sources that you're looking at. So with that, let's wrap it up. Thank you all so much. This is such a great conversation. I appreciate your time and expertise. And thank you, Hannah, for working with me on this.